Hi, good morning. Um, elementary kiddos can go ahead and head out. See you guys later. Oh, and middle school too. Middle school. Goodbye. <laughs> All right. Um, my name is, is this, can you hear me? I hate these microphones. Okay. Um, my name is Kelsey Arum, for those of you that don't know, and every so often Bob trusts me to do a little supply teaching up here, and um, I'm a little disappointed because I hear after Friday night that Kenny is like the ultimate hype man, and so I was hoping he would like introduce me, um, maybe next time. But we are on week four of our series in John 15, and this is titled Remain, which is aptly titled. We see this repeated over and over here. Um, the first week, Bob set up the image of the vine for us. And then Justin got to teach on the fact that Jesus says, you are already clean. You are clean. And then last week, Bob um, reminded us what it looks like when we are producing fruit as we stay connected to the vine. Um, and so this week, I'm going to teach on um, verses 7 and 8 today. And I would encourage you, if while we're in this, this particular passage in John, um, be reading it repetitively at home on your own. Read through the entire Gospel of John if you can, but read through chapter 15 over and over because those repeated readings are going to help you as we grapple with these verses. Um, and these verses today um, are probably something, at least the concept of prayer in these verses, is something that we have potentially been um, mistaught or taught out of context at some point. And so I'm just profoundly grateful to be able to be up here today to get to study the Word of God with you. Um, so let's dig in. If you open your Bibles with me to John 15, um, in the Pew Bible, it's page 1537, which at this point, week four, it should just fall open to that, right? Everybody's been opening to that. Um, all right, so I'm going to go ahead and read. I think I'll start in verse five and then read through verses seven and eight just so we can kind of recalibrate ourselves a bit. Oh, goodness. You guys, I have to actually put my glasses on. I didn't want to have to do this. Okay, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So we're looking at verses 7 and 8 today. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in, in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we love to skip to the second half of this verse, right? The ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you part. Um, and we tend to forget the resounding gong of this entire passage, which is the front end, the remain in me. Um, and maybe you're thinking, Kelsey, we've been doing this for four weeks, so let's just skip to the goods, right? Like We don't need to go over that again. Um, but listen, I get it. I understand the importance of prayer. Ever, I'm going ex to show you an example so that you know you can trust me as an expert on prayer. Ever since I was a kid, when I was little, I would lay in my bed. At, that was sarcastic, by the way. Um, ever since I was a kid, I would lay in bed at night, and maybe you guys said this prayer when you were little too, and I would lay there, and I closed my eyes, and every single night, 
every single night, I would say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, right? But I added my own flavor on the end. I'd say, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And please keep me safe from fires, tornadoes, murderers, and axe murderers. Amen. That's every single night. That's what I said. Um, because, right, so because scripture, you got to cover all your bases. Um, if you don't specifically ask for something, right, and there's a lot of axes laying around and you just, you never know. You got to be, you got to be careful. Um, no, but seriously, how we understand it will be done for you in the second half of this verse is directly connected to how we understand remain in me in the front side of this. And so we're going to look at this from a little bit of a different angle today, and we're going to actually go back to the Old Testament and look at the book of Ezra. Okay, and some of you are like, Ezra, who, what's happening? Exactly, the book of Ezra. Um, so this is a short little book that actually covers a century of history, and you'll find it kind of towards the front end of the Old Testament, but if you have a chronological Bible or you've read the Bible chronologically, Ezra actually is almost at the very end of the Old Testament chronologically. Only Nehemiah and Malachi are after it. So to kind of set up this passage that we're going to look at, we have to understand a little bit of the context and the history of what's happening um, surrounding this. So the contents of the book of Ezra occur after the Israelites have been captured by the Babylonians. Um, so the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem and its temple there, and they've taken the Israelites into captivity. And you can read about that in the book of, in 2 Kings. And Jerusalem, as you probably recall from Sunday school felt boards, um, gosh, if I didn't put the glasses on earlier, now I'm really aging myself by talking about felt boards, but I would love to have one of those up here and teach from one of those sometime. Okay, sorry. All right, so what was I saying? Jerusalem, as you probably remember if you've studied this in Sunday school at all, is um, sort of the capital, right? It's, it's the capital of the promised land that God has promised to these Israelites. And the temple that's located in Jerusalem is a very, very important part of their worship because it was where the glory of God dwelled or resided. Um, it was where his very presence was. And so the temple that the Israelites had built in Second Chronicles has been destroyed, all right? And so in between the destruction of the temple and the book of Ezra, there are a lot of prophetic books of the Bible um, where God sends his prophets to be a mouthpiece to his people. And during those prophecies, his prophets would have promised the Israelites that his presence would return in a new temple. So these Israelites that have been in captivity remember this promise, and this is a promise I want you guys, as my six-year-old would say, trap that in your brain, okay? So trap that in your brain, because we're going to come back to that. So to be removed from these, to be removed from the temple and Jerusalem um, and brought into captivity is like a triple whammy for these Israelites. So the book of Ezra picks up about 50 years later, and God changes the hearts of one of the Persian kings, and so some of the Israelites are returning to Jerusalem now, and they're working on rebuilding this very important city and also rebuilding the temple. Um, and the person in charge of rebuilding the temple, his name's Zerubbabel. So if you're looking for a baby name, you're welcome, Zerubbabel. Um, 
So he's the leader for this portion of the text. And then Nehemiah and Ezra um, lead different parts of the rebuilding process. So Zerubbabel really gets cheated out of having a book of the Bible named after him, in my opinion. Um, But if you've ever done like a building project with a church before, a lot of times you study the book of Nehemiah or the book of Ezra and you talk about these rebuilding processes. Um, But I hope if you stick with me today, you'll see that there's more to these passages than just getting some walls of a sanctuary built. Okay, God uses these books to point us to his call to remain in him. So for the Israelites coming back to Jerusalem, this is more than just a political event, all right? This is a sign that their relationship with God is actually being restored because they get to return to this land. It's promised land via covenant with God. And they've spent 70 years in captivity, 70 years, Therefore, most of the people that are actually returning to, to um, Jerusalem in the book of Ezra were born in captivity. Some of them have never set foot there before. Um, so very few people are actually getting to go back to something they even remember. All right, so thanks for hanging with me through the history lesson. That kind of gets our bearings, and we're going to turn to Ezra chapter 3, which is, let's see, page 670 in your pew Bible. Um, and we're going to read quite a bit from here. So go ahead and turn there. Ezra chapter three. So the Israelites have been released from Babylon. They've been back in Israel for about seven months, it says, and they've settled in their towns and homes. And now they're gathering in Jerusalem to start doing the work here. So we're going to pick up in verse or chapter three, verse two. Then Joshua, son of Josadak and his fellow priests, And Zerubbabel, son of Shutiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. Wow, super exciting stuff, right? This doesn't sound very exciting to our modern ears. Um, You've got to love, though, how they just jump right in. We see that they've started to grow fearful because there's other people that have come into this area, but they want to be, um, they want to make sure that they're following God's commands. And so they jump right in and they've been, they start to do the work in these tangible ways. And these are people that know what it's been like to not be able to perform these sacrifices to their God. And so they are just excited to get to jump back in. Um, and the text, I love that it says they kept the morning and evening, evening sacrifices. So there's a sense of continual motion around the clock. They're doing these things. They're stepping out despite their fear to do the next thing that God has asked them to do. So if we sit with these Israelites for a minute, these are people who are just months removed from their captivity in a land many of them have never set foot in, like we talked about, and they're trying to turn back to their faithful God that they've been unable to build an altar to for all their lives. They're in a new, unfamiliar, and scary place, um, and they're probably worried about getting it right. They might not even know how to build the altar, right? They're YouTubing the dimensions. They're checking the length of the nails um, to make sure that they're doing this thing because they want to be true to their God, um, 
that he has called them to this and freed them for this. Um, And we can live driven by his commands, building altars to worship him despite our fears of all the things that we can't be in control of, right? Um, And this becomes a byproduct of our remaining in him, which we're gonna kind of talk about here as we go. So our productivity in the building process is not what it's about. It's not about what we're producing, but about how our hearts are aligning to what we want to do with him. So let's go ahead and look at verses five through six here in chapter three. It says, after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offering to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Okay, so again, this can all start to sound really bizarre to us, um, but we need to talk about the altar and the offerings and the sacrifices in the Old Testament for a second, because I don't know about you, but I haven't like sacrificed a goat and spread its blood all over my house lately. Um, I know groceries are getting expensive, but I haven't, re- I haven't like quite gotten that desperate yet. Um, but if you've spent much time in the Old Testament, or um, maybe you haven't, but it can be tricky to kind of wrap our mind around why these things have to be happening or what's even going on because we no longer practice these rituals. Um, The book of the Bible that most closely walks us through this is the book of Leviticus. Um, In this book, we see God in the tent of meeting with Moses and he's giving him all the, the regulations for how to perform these. And these laws are extremely detailed if you've ever read the book of Leviticus. Um, And they're outlining every specific thing. And the central message, though, of the book of Leviticus is absolutely beautiful. It's that we have a holy God and that it requires his people to be holy, but that he doesn't stop there, but he provides a means for us to actually get to approach him. And that's where these sacrifices come in. And one time when I read through the book of Leviticus, I highlighted every time blood was mentioned, which is kind of a weird thing. But um, 75 times is what I got. And I probably missed some, but 75 times in the book of Leviticus, it talks about the importance of blood and what they're doing with the blood. Um, and I, it can start to feel like legalism and how they're going about it, but we can miss that beautiful truth that a holy God is providing his unholy people with a way to be in right standing with him. And so basically a very, very simplistic lesson on, on this, on atonement is the word for it, is that evil and sin are not just a problem out there in the world, which I think a lot of times when we're sitting here in church, we can start to think that, right? Um, But evil and sin are a problem inside each and every one of us. Um, Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fallen short. And so if God were to just blot out all the evil in the world, that would include us. And he knows that. And so he provides a way in his goodness for us to be covered. And that's where the animal sacrifice and the blood comes in. So One thing in the Bible that starts to get weird is when you start talking about the uncleanliness, okay? And what that is, is is the same idea where our horizontal sin starts to affect the people around us, the places around us. So if you ever read about the priests like sprinkling blood on things, that's what they're doing. They are purifying the outward symbols, um, the, the outward things so that they can live in peace with this holy God. Um, it was a means of grace from a holy God to make things right between him 
um, and his people. And so then when we see Jesus in the New Testament, in Mark 10, 15, he says he's come as a ransom for all. And that word ransom is atonement, all right? So the New Testament is littered with all these messages that Jesus came as the once for all sacrifice, the once for all atonement for us. And that's why we don't have to go kill a goat and spread his blood everywhere because Jesus did that on the cross for us. His death covered and purified us from all of our evil and sinful acts. So all those previous animals' deaths were pointing to Jesus's death all along. Okay, so then when we get to these Old Testament passages where they're building altars and all these things, we're like, what is going on? That's what's going on. They don't have the cross. They have to be covered by the animal's blood here. And in Exodus 24, I wanted to show this passage um, real quickly. I have a slide. Yeah. Okay. Verses 3 and 7 through 8. So this is Moses after he gives the, the, the law to the people and he knows that they're not going to be able to actually um, keep this law. Remember our last um, sermon series was on keeping God's commands and we said there's so many, there's provision for us. So it says, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Okay, but this is where he's like, yeah, you've said that before. I know that's not true, so I'm going to help you out. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded again, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So he actually takes the blood and throws it on the people because he knows, even though they're saying, we're going to obey, we're going to do it. He's like, yeah, okay, here, here, I'm going to go ahead and just cover you with this because I know you need it, right? And so I love that image because that is what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's he's covering us. All right, so back to Ezra, right? He, we go back with this deeper understanding. These people have not been able to perform these really important sacrifices, these really important moments of worship. They haven't been able to do them, and they're so excited to be back in Jerusalem and able and to do these. So they're super thankful. And then we get to Ezra 3, 10 through 13, and this is the last chunk we're going to read from Ezra. Um, and you'll start to see, hopefully, how it connects to our John 15 passage. So verse 10, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets, and the Levites, the, son of As the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They're getting to rebuild that temple. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So we have some shouting for joy and some weeping. So what is going on here? I think this is a picture of the lives that we lead here on this earth in a lot of ways. Um, 
is it not? Some, some days we're weeping, some days we're shouting for joy. But what's going on in this particular passage? So for those weeping, there are a couple of things happening. These are members of the older generation who remember that first temple and the time before captivity, okay? And they've come back and now this is happening and they start to weep and they're looking back at what was weeping possibly because they think it can never be the same, right? And we do that, don't we? We look back and we think, well, it'll never be this good. And so we have a hard time even seeing God's provision for what's in front of us right now. But another thing is happening too, and it has to do with the Shekinah glory of God. Shekinah in Hebrew means dwelling or one who dwells. And dwells kind of feels like a fancy biblical word that we don't, we don't really use it anymore. We don't say, um, where is your dwelling? And I dwell in Kansas City, or I have a ranch style dwelling, right? Or I dwell off the grid. What, we, don't, we don't use that term anymore. But I do love the richness of this word, the Shekinah glory that was this dwelling of God's presence among his people. And we see this, um, if you remember back in Exodus, the pillar, um, the pillar of smoke by day and the fire by night, okay, that was God's Shekinah glory. But most of the time, it's in a very specific place when we see it in the Old Testament. First, it's in the tent of meeting where God met with Moses. And then it was in the tabernacle, which was like a fancier collapsible version of the future temple that they're going to build while they're going through the desert, all right? And then when they reach the promised land and they don't need a mobile home anymore, that's when they build the temple, all right? Um, and in Second Chronicles 7-1, this is when they just finished the temple, and it says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is God's Shekinah glory, his very presence coming to dwell with his people. And the elders in Ezra remember this moment. They remember his glory being in the temple and they see the lack of it this time. It's not happening. And they're saying, what is going on? Because do you remember the prophecies that had been promised to them? I hope so, because I told you to trap it in your brain. Okay? It was that God's presence would come back in the new temple. That he would come to dwell with them. So what's happening? The temple's being built. Where is he? Did he lie? Is the prophecy not true? Luckily for us, we get the entire Bible right? And we know that God cannot lie. Um, but it often happens how we wouldn't imagine it. Hebrews 2.9 says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. And that glory is the same glory that's mentioned there. It's the exact same glory of God's glory coming to dwell in the temple. Um, and John 1.14 puts it this way. He says, the word, which is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So his glory comes in the form of Jesus. It's seeable, it's touchable, it's accessible to us. And then John 2, 19 says, this is Jesus talking, um, he says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. The temple he had spoken of was his body. So the Savior God, they did not expect, comes as their greatest king, but also as their greatest 
temple. And we've talked about how important the temple was to the Jewish people at this time. It was where God's glory resides. And Jesus is saying, here I am, right? So that less than 24 hours before his crucifixion, he gathers his disciples together and he's like, okay, this is, this is the last like huddle before the big push during the fourth quarter, right? I got to say what's important. And what does he choose to talk about? This is John 15. He chooses to talk about dwelling, remaining, abiding. And this is God's glory in the temple language that he is using with his disciples. And they would have realized this. Jesus says, remain in me as I remain in you. Remain, dwell in me. So for the Jews, for his disciples listening, this is, this is revolutionary because their abiding place, their dwelling place was Jerusalem. It was the temple. It was this very important thing, which is why these elders are weeping when his, God's glory doesn't come. It's a very significant part. So if you grew up in one state, um, but and you live most of your life there, and then you've moved to another one. When someone says, where are you from? You acknowledge the first place. You say, well, I grew up in Virginia, but now I live in Missouri or whatever, right? Virginia is still a part of you. There's this at-homeness about Virginia that you feel like you have to mention whenever someone asks where you're from. And for the Jews, Jerusalem was that place. Jerusalem was home. It was where they went to perform those important sacrifices we talked about. Um, and it was, it was just ultimate for them. So when Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, remain in me, right? When he is saying that, it's a radical statement because he's saying the promised land is no longer a place on a map, okay? The temple is no longer a place you're going to go to. It's me. Dwell in me. Go with me, and so for them, when, when people ask, where are you from? Jesus is saying, I want you to say you're from me. Jerusalem is, that doesn't matter anymore. This is where you live right now. I'm it. I'm the temple. And so these are revolutionary statements, like I said, because now the temple is no longer stationary. It's no longer a place, one specific place they have to go. But if it's Jesus, that means it's moving. And if we're remaining in him and abiding in him, then we go with him and we go where he goes. It's not one place. And so, sorry, I lost my spot. I got excited. Um, all right, so what Jesus actually built did bring God's presence back, right? He built a house for all who dwell in him and to be home with him, get to be a part of that dwelling of God. So God, in fact, did keep his promise that was prophesied. He did send his presence into a new temple, Jesus Christ. And then after the resurrection, right, we see that Christ sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And in, in Corinthians, it talks about how our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. So it's this incredible language that we get to see and be a part of. So if those rejoicing at the foundation of the temple could have known all of this, how much louder their shouts of joy would have been, right? And how differently their tears would have fallen on their face. And we are privy to this information. We get to see um, the atonement from all sides of the cross, and we get to choose to remain in him. So with this knowledge, with this choosing to remain and dwell in him, the true temple, we get to move then to the second part of verse 7. 
So it says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, we're back in John 15, sorry. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So we can know that this topic that Jesus taught on is important to John because John wrote quite a few books in the New Testament and he writes about it again in 1 John. In 1 John 5, he said, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So what requests are actually answered by God? Here in 1 John, it says, anything according to his will. And how can we as believers know whether our requests are being made in accordance with his will? Well, it's John 15, 7. We remain in him and his words remain in us. And a lot of times, um, I have been mistaught this, and you maybe have too, where we think, well, I can just obey God, and, and then he'll, he'll do whatever I ask of him. Or if I say, in Jesus' name, then I've prayed the right way, and then my prayers will get answered. Um, or if I, you know, get down on my knees and I'm in the right position, then, the, then that's what this verse is meaning. But the key to unlock this verse is this, what does it mean to actually remain, actually dwell in Christ in such a way that his words remain in us? That's the key, because if this is true, if we are remaining, then we begin to desire the very things that he desires. There is a, um, a verse in Psalm 37, 4 that you're probably familiar with, it says, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your hearts, right? And this doesn't mean that he's going to give you the things that your heart naturally desires, but that he will give you a new set of desires, that he is going to change your heart from the inside to cherish his ways and instruct your heart in that way. I think we often don't take stock of our desires um, very carefully. I know I don't. In my prayer life, I'm, I'm just talking and I'm just saying things as they come. And I'm not prayerfully asking, Jesus, are these your words in me? Are these um, your desires or are these desires that have just been marketed to me, right? I have this little thing in my pocket that tells me a lot of things. It says, eat this, do this, be this, right? And am I just praying those things or am I remaining in Jesus and am I letting his words remain in me in a way that he is instructing me how to be, what to do, what to think, right? And I think it's also worth noting here that Jesus is pointing us to the path of maturity in prayer. Our prayers aren't going to look like this as new believers. Um, but the more we remain, the more we allow the indwelling of his spirit to shape us, the more our hearts are going to be aligned with him. And the less we're going to start to pray for outcomes, and the more we will start to pray for contentment in whatever outcome happens. There is a way we can ask for things from God with a closed fist. And there is a way that we can ask for outcomes with an open hand. And let me speak carefully or kind of tenderly here. Um, it's a very, very hard thing to pray for something, sometimes for years and years, and then have God not act that way and do something different. Um, that's a very hard thing. And I would say um, that in those prayers, you're not necessarily praying outside the will of God. 
Um, I think we can always pray to our best understanding of the will of God. Um, but essentially what we're doing when we pray these prayers, we're saying, if I were seated on the throne, God, and thankfully I'm not, but if I were, this is how I would act. This is what I think is best. Would you do this? And then whatever happens, we have to be willing to say, but Lord, I trust in accordance to your will. And ultimately, I trust that you're doing the work of, that will show us who you are ultimately in the end. And this is not easy, and it is not simple, and it is not something that we say as the person not suffering to the person who is, God's will will be done. Don't worry about it. Just pray. It'll be great. No, we pray with them. We grieve with them. We mourn with them. Um, and we continue to pray for healing for them, but with an open hand. And when we pray this way, when we stop asking God to prove himself to us, um, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to change our prayers from being about me and what I want to being about what God wants. Um, we can try, write, you try writing down your prayers because sometimes that will reveal, you know, how much uh, the Bible teacher Jen Wilkins talks about praying the I, me, my minds. And a lot of times if we're not writing them down, we don't realize how central we are in our prayers. Um, so I think a lot of times we're, we're praying about God fixing, our, fixing someone else's mess to advance our own kingdom, right? So just kind of be thinking of that. And we recently, um, at our house, we watched the Disney classic, um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's really old, but I, I think it's like underrated, man. That was a good movie. Um, but there's a scene, and I got teary-eyed over it. Esmeralda is in the church, and she's praying in song form because it's Disney. Um, but she's praying um, for the outcasts, and it's juxtaposed to the village people walking through the church and praying their prayers, and they have the I, me, my minds. They're praying for God to bless them. And it's this picture of what we're talking about here where it's a good reminder that we can make prayer all about requesting and forget the other important parts of prayer, the ones in which we can know that we're always praying into the will of God, which is when we pray for forgiveness, when we praise him for his attributes. Um, and I think if we prayed those prayers more often, when we did get to the request prayers, they would, they would look differently. There are certain things promised to us in scripture that they will be answered when we pray. Wisdom's one of those. Bob talked about last week, praying to bear more fruit. Anything that's gonna make us more like Christ, those prayers are guaranteed in scripture. Um, those are whatever you wish kind of prayers. Um, but what about my husband's job? What about we have a senior graduating and I wanna pray for their path in this life, right? What about my kid who's sick? Can I, can I pray those prayers? Yes, but those are the prayers we pray with an open hand, trusting that he knows the best outcome. What we know is a pinprick, right, to what he knows. And I think another important part in this verse is to point out that we do pray. Our natural bent is prayerlessness, okay? But Jesus here is reminding us, no, pray. It is my joy to partner with you in prayer. Um. And to kind of wrap up a little bit here, if you have been mistaught prayer over the years, I think that James 5 um, has probably been used. And so as we wrap up, I want to look at this quickly. Um, 
All right, so James 5, verses 13 through 16. Is anyone happy, or sorry, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Okay, that's probably something most of us have heard when we have done a study on prayer. Um, and this is where it gets hic- uh, like kind of sticky because uh, if we read this, we think, well, maybe we just have to pray the right way, right? We got to get our uh, young living oils out, right? That's what it talks about. Maybe that's not the right brand, sorry. Um, But we have to pray the right formula. We have to be a righteous person. We have to have the right people involved. And then this says that our prayers will work, right? Um, But that would be counter to what the entire Bible actually teaches. The Lord doesn't um, give out favors based on how righteous we are. So that can't possibly be what this means. If you go to the Gospel of Mark, and I'll just do, do this briefly, but if you go to the Gospel of Mark, you guys are probably familiar with the story of the paralytic man and his friends bring him and they raise him through the roof, right, to, to, to be with Jesus so that he can be healed. And when he comes, Jesus looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, great, he can't walk. Um, and Jesus says, okay, but what's harder? What, what is harder, for me to look at him and forgive him of his sins or to heal his legs? So he's making this point, right? He's making this point that the greater healing is always going to be the spiritual one. He does eventually heal this man's legs, but it's so that it can point to his power of spiritual healing. So when we start to read these passages, that passage in James through that lens, that that was Jesus's bent was always for the spiritual healing, they start to look different, don't they? I don't think they, that our prayers rule out physical healing. Um, I think that that can sometimes happen. I just don't think it's promised. Um, But this passage is not one that says, if you do X and Y, then God will do Z. That's not how our prayers work. But it is a passage that says, if you confess your sins, then there is always, always healing for you in that. And it's a passage that says, if you remain in me, I'll give you my desires to pray, and it will be done for you, right? That is what Jesus is teaching us here. Um, Not too long ago on a Sunday morning here, after the service, I grabbed a friend and we went up to the bell tower up there um, and we sat on the floor and we prayed and we cried and we prayed and we prayed over my um, friend's 10-year-old son. We prayed for his brain after a car crash. And a month later, I went to his funeral. So what happened when I was up in that bell tower? Did God not hear those prayers? Did, did I not pray them the right way? Was there some hidden sin in my life? Is that why that prayer wasn't answered? Um, but what I'm learning through this passage today about remaining and about prayer and through that time of anguish prayers is that the prayer of faith is not a prayer for a particular outcome, but it is prayer towards a faithful God. That is the prayer of faith. And when we think back to those elders in Ezra, standing to praise God in the midst of joy and in the midst of weeping, 
in the middle of the unknown, that's what true worship is. That's what true prayer is. It's a chance to turn our face to God and remember that he is who he says he is. It's the song we sang last week, right? To remember he's still just as good as when I met him. He's still just as kind. To remember his glory came to dwell with us and to dwell within us. And the prayer that is always, always answered in our suffering is that a God who identifies with our suffering, Hebrews says he, he identifies with our suffering, and the prayer that's always answered is that that God will be with us in the middle of it. So to close, we need to look at, the, we need to look at verse 8 super fast so I don't get fired. Um, so back to John 15, verse 8 says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So what is to the Father's glory? That we remain in him. How do we show that we're his disciples? We remain in Christ. We're so connected to the vine that whatever he desires and whatever he wants becomes our wants and desires. The command here, don't miss it, the command is not to bear fruit. The command is to remain, to dwell, to abide. And in doing so, our hearts are changed toward his will and we pray from there and we bear much fruit from there. So today, how can you turn prayer back over to the Lord and see it as a way of saying, not my will, but yours be done? How can you unclench your fists and pray not towards a certain outcome, but pray towards a faithful God? How can you remain in Jesus, go with him, be in him, be in his word, in such a way that his greatest desires become yours and change your prayers? When we pray in Jesus' name, we see that a lot. When we pray in Jesus' name, that is not just words that we say, but it's a realigning and a re-identifying with ourselves of our true identity. We are in Jesus Christ. We are image bearers in him, and we pray in his name because we ultimately want what he wants. Jesus knew all about prayers from the gut in the middle of the night. Do you remember him in the garden before he went to the cross? He asked God if he could skip the cross. And then ultimately he finishes with an open hand and he says, not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come. And we know he didn't get to skip the cross. We know that that happened. But Hebrews 5 says that Jesus's prayer was heard. How is that so? How was it heard if he still went to the cross? Because it says it was, he did it in reverent submission. That's this. Reverent submission, praying not for an outcome, but towards a faithful God. And it was to his father's glory, like, the, like verse 8 says. He left that garden, he went to the cross, and he bore much fruit. His atoning sacrifice covered us once for all. He threw that blood on us. And on the cross, he became our greatest temple. And now we don't have to travel to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to a temple we can find on a map right? But we go with him. We remain in him. And our prayers from the gut in the middle of the night will be heard as well. As we unclench our fists and we turn our face towards him. So today we get to take communion. Um, we get to partake in the actual symbol of atonement, his blood and his body. Um, and as we do so, would you remember that you are covered 
Would you let this be a symbol to you, a reminder to you of this faithful God that provided this ultimate sacrifice? And whether you're here today weeping or singing, he hears you. Open your hands and come to him with prayers, not trusting in a specific outcome, but trusting in our very specific God who provided and sacrificed the last and only lamb that we will ever need so that he could come and dwell in each of us. The ushers are going to come and dismiss you by row. Um, There's gluten-free options on the end here. Um, But would you just bow your heads with me and spend some time in prayer as we just open our hands to God and remember his faithfulness towards us. God, we thank you um, just for the beauty of scripture and how we can see your hand all over it from the beginning to the end. And we thank you um, for the way in which you sent Jesus to be the temple for us, to be the atonement for us, to cover us with his blood so that when we come to you in prayer, with things we don't understand, with things that we can't possibly understand why you act a certain way or do a certain thing, God, we, we just thank you that when we come to you in prayer, that you are the same faithful God um, that you've always been, that we can trust that we, we understand so little, but that we can understand that you are faithful, that you are kind, that you are good, And God, would you teach us how to remain in you in such a way that we can open our hands when we pray to you, that we could say, not my will. It's not about me. It's not about my kingdom. It's about yours. And would you help us learn to have peace and contentment in whatever outcomes result from our prayers and trust that your hand is over them, that ultimately you are Um, in control, that ultimately your glory will be shown. God, we just thank you um, for this place that we get to come and be um, together and to remind ourselves to look to you. And God, we just open our hands now and um, we just remind ourselves of what you did on the cross for us.